All right, folks, welcome to Idiopod. I am TJ Stone. I am Shane Glover. And this episode, we're talking with our good friend, Brett Maybury, who is the artist, pastor, arts collective pastor at our church, Journey Church. And he had a lot of cool stuff to talk to us about in this Mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah, he's a good, uh, really good guy, first of all. Like, just an awesome individual. Um, He is Australian, which you'll pick up on pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, TJ and I tried to hang with him, I think, a little bit with accents, and it just doesn't go well. Did not work out. I think we we talk an inordinate amount of time about accents. Well, it's important. It is important. My uh, kids, and and my wife, to be quite frank, uh, get I don't want to say they get mad at me, but they get pretty perturbed about how bad I am at, at any accent, honestly. And I think I think sometimes I nail it, uh, quite honestly, but, you know. what What's your best accent? I'm super curious. Um, it probably is Australian. Yeah? I mean... Give, give, give us a little bit. Oh, good eye, mate. Good on you. Throw See, another, that sounded British, didn't it? A little bit. I Dang. went British on the good on you. Ah. Yeah. Throw another shrimp on the barbie, mate. Yeah, I don't think... I don't even know if that's a real... That's a Jim Carrey phrase, I think. Is that a thing? I don't know. We, have to, we should have asked him. Damn. I only know about Australians through Crocodile Dundee movies. Right. And that the Crocodile sense. Hunter. A lot of crocodile-themed oh, yeah. things. Yeah. That is funny. Yeah. What's the deal with crocodiles? And, are there a lot of crocodiles in Australia? There must be. Hollywood would lead me to believe so. Well, Hollywood's right, so... Always. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with our good friend. Welcome to episode two. With Brett Mabry. I am Shane Glover. And I am TJ Stone, and we're here with our good buddy, Brett Mabry. Hello. Hello, Brett. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, I uh, am so excited. Obviously, obviously we are... uh, we're good friends. We're on staff together as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we wanted to find some way to have someone with a really cool accent on our <laughs> on our show here. <laughs> An Australian's the best. Well, hopefully I can live up to the Australian <laughs> accent. I don't know. We'll see. You will. You already have. Okay, good. So you're doing great. I think everything said in an Australian accent is is instantly sounds smarter and cooler at the same time. Well, I feel that way about living in this country. Everyone sounds way smarter than I do. So. Oh, man. Yeah. I forget that I have an accent, actually. Sure. Yeah. Probably just wherever you live, another country sounds more sophisticated and cooler than, than what I have. Like, uh, whether it's British or Australian, I always think, wow, they sound so much cooler That's than That's probably true. I, I don't... Siri... I never choose Aussie-sounding Siri because I feel like the Siri's going to let me down if they sound Australian. But if they have if they have another accent, uh, it's like, oh, I'm going to pay attention to you because you're probably smarter than me. Exactly. Yeah, that's I, very good. I, I this maybe I'll just say it. My Siri is an Australian guy. Well, how I don't about that? Know if that's weird, or I went for English accent. You went for Aussie. Yeah, I or, think it's cool because I feel like, oh, this guy will not steer me in the wrong direction. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I turned off my Siri because I don't want the government listening in on Uh-oh. all my random oh, queries. I didn't, I didn't realize it was one of those podcasts. <laughs> See, I don't I don't uh I don't do anything questionable. T 
TJ <laughs> that I'm worried about. Well, uh, on, on the uh, well, that's for another podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> but on the talk of accents, I, I feel like I've spent most of my life just trying to make folks believe I have at least a, an average IQ with my accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is one of the fascinating things of this country. I mean, it exists in Australia, but not to the same extent that it does here, where the the sound is so vastly different in certain cities. And uh, uh, I don't I don't experience that personally, even when I'm traveling from the north to the south to the east to the west. And when you head into the like the the backyard, so to speak, uh-huh. of Australia and, and you're out uh-huh. in the desert and you're on farms, I mean, yes, then it can get to be a very thick Australian right. accent. Right. And the indigenous some of my indigenous friends had had another accent. Sure. But um, but generally speaking, Australians seem to sound fairly similar, apart from little words that you go, oh, you're from Queensland, or oh, oh, you're from Western Australia. But like comparing someone from Alabama yeah. to someone from New York to someone living on the beach in LA, like they can sound so different. That's very 100%. true. A hundred percent. That's interesting. So there's real, there's not a real uh, variation of dialect in Australia. Not, not to the extent that exists here. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. from my experience. Well, to me, you have like prof- professorial Australian yes. dialect, is what I'm hearing. Okay, what does that mean, uh, professorial? You, you sound like a professor. professor. Oh, an Australian okay. professor, okay. which is okay. the best kind. All right. Well, I made the move in coming here then because none of my friends would say I sound like a professor. <laughs> All right, let's uh, go. Great. Let's do it. So tell us how how the guy from Queensland, Australia, is that where you're from? I am from the other side. I'm from Western Australia. Western Australia. In a very isolated city called Perth. That's right. Yeah. Perth. Well, how did you get here in Brentwood, Tennessee? Yeah, uh, I mean, that really is so many connection points to me actually being here, and it was quite the process, so, um, or process. So, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, it's hard to know how far to go back because it really is all connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I went back to when I was 20 and I mean, I was working in the science field. This is going to be boom, boom, boom. But I was working in the science field, was working with a band, was not up to the standard of the band, started having music stirring in my heart, ended up leaving science, working in a hospital, working for an advertising company, just a little blip in the process. But mm. but that that journey of getting into music when I was 26 and then staying at music school for seven years, I thought it would be one year, and then left music school and realized while I was there, I realized I had such a heart for getting to be around other artists and mm. not simply be an artist, but actually be around other artists. And then I got offered an opportunity to start my own school and uh, had a, an opportunity to get to become a pastor at the church I grew up in, which was never on my agenda. I didn't see that coming. That's like a full circle moment in itself. Yeah. I mean, uh, I met my wife uh, while I was studying music as well. She's from Paris. And that was part of the world opening up to me. And uh, when I met her, it was, okay, so I'm probably not going to stay in Australia. Where am I going to go? Probably might be London, maybe Paris. Like, we'll see. 
and uh, my brother who was in the band and he's a producer and a drummer and an entrepreneur and his name's Paul Maybury and he uh, moved to Nashville and the first time I came to Nashville was to help him on a project because he was going to start a company and um, got to conduct at this huge session with this big orchestra that they'd put together. That was my first time in Nashville, that was about 11 years ago mm. um, and it was crazy just um, from that trip my wife and I knew Nashville was going to be the place but oh, then it wow. was how. We were both walking through the airport and it was this really weird feeling of I've come home and I turned to my wife and said hey I know this sounds really strange but I feel like we're home and she said I feel the same way. Mm. So at that point we knew that it was likely to be Nashville and then uh, fast forward about another year and I came out of my room and I'd just been sitting there quietly and pondering my future and um, came out and I said to her, I don't think it's going to be the music industry that takes us to Nashville. I think I'm going to be a pastor in Nashville. No way. Wow. Yeah. And then two days after that, my brother contacted me, who's living here, and said, I just had this random conversation with my lead pastor, this guy called Jamie, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, I think he's looking for you. So, oh so your brother used to go to Journey Church. Right. And uh, so can I put your name forward as one of the guys? Wow. Sure. So uh, so do you have the gift of prophecy? I don't know, but <laughs> I, I think I did in that moment. And um, then a year passed and uh, Jamie uh, flew me out here to do some interviews. And it went well, obviously, because I'm here. And then it was a three-year process to me actually landing. Mm. It was a long wait. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, you talk about marker moments. There was a few of those moments through that waiting, um, a lot of letting go, and uh, which we could talk about if you want. But um, That sounds like but, a good place to dig in because I feel like so I know our stories, so much of, so much of where where the real shaping and the real happening is, is in the tension, is in the waiting of those those things that you you, you almost don't want to speak out loud because you don't want it to, to kind of go sideways, but you kind of know what you're hoping for. Yeah. And it's just the space between you and getting there is, is longer than you'd like it to be. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah, I remember, um, so, you know, <laughs> my wife said to me, when I was getting on the plane for these interviews. I mean, even that was just, so I got an email from Jamie saying, hey, Brett, how, how quick can you get here? Uh, and I was right in the middle of this big production. There was uh, a big event that was happening in Perth, Australia, and I got to be the music director for it, and I wrote the charts for it, and there was the uh, army band that was playing, oh. which was like a 40-piece, 50-piece. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, concert band we had a 200 voice choir that we put together it was like the uh police pipe band that was playing it's quite a and production it, it was a big production and at one point they were all playing together so wow. so it was just a big production and uh i was music directing it and running the rehearsals with a couple of other music directors from these different you know ensembles and i said jamie i just i i, I 
definitely I want to come, but I just don't know if it can happen before this production. Mm -hmm. We found a way for me to get here and my head was spinning as I landed. My wife was like, now you go be good. And uh, (laughs) so, uh, so yeah, it was an interesting um, moment to be suddenly in, in this country sitting with Jamie totally jet-lagged, sure. embarking on this whole new chapter and um, flew back, really none of us realizing it was going to be three and a half to four years. Oh, of course, it, yeah. We thought six to eight weeks and because other visa applications didn't take yeah. anywhere longer than that. Like there was a, it was maybe three months at the most. So like my thought was I fly home, I let work know I'm leaving and three months later at the most we're out so when it all started to become a real paperwork challenge um and what year was this oh goodness so just to get I've, a sense of yeah, what was going so, on in the in the country yeah, and the yeah. world at the time so i've been here since 2013 so that would have been 2009 i think my word 10 years ago so uh yeah that's when it would have been. So Obama had just taken office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a, I mean, and my brother was living in East Nashville and four, four out of five homes was empty. It was the middle of the, the biggest recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Yeah, it was, I mean, mind-blowing walking around the neighborhood with my brother and just seeing the heartache. Yeah. Um, and we were largely untouched in Australia. Um, mm. And that was one of the delays was was the journey church and and Jamie having to navigate that. So uh, to then uh, come back three months later after the interview to see family, we'd already organized the trip so I could see my nephews and my sister-in-law and hang out with my brother. Uh, So while I was on that trip, uh, I, you know, Jamie and and Gary, who was one of the pastors at the time, uh, called me into the office to say, hey, let's let's get together. And Karen came, so I wanted them to meet Karen mm-hmm. for the first time. And with all the, sh- the, the trouble and struggle, um, they, they said, look, we're just not sure we can make this work. We, we desperately need somebody. And um, uh, it's, it's not going the way we thought. And in that moment, like my wife starts to cry and she's in tears oh, and like, mm. so I had the ache of me letting it go. Mm. My wife is so desperate to come and live in this country, so excited at the idea of it. And now it seems like it's all not gonna happen. Mm. Right. So in that moment, I, I absolutely said, I totally get it. Like I, whether it's now or whether it's 10 years or 20 years, I don't know. My sense is that Nashville will be home for me one day, Mm. Mm. but I totally, totally release you guys from any sense of obligation that that I'm the guy. So what did that feel like within you having to say that and having to let go of that expectation? The release was not hard. Okay. But the seeing my wife in tears, that was Mm. hard. Mm. Yeah. Sure. So... um, so, I mean, two days later, Gary called me up and said, how quickly can you meet with our lawyer? So I don't know what happened. I don't know what Jamie and Gary talked about, but within two days I was sitting with a lawyer and, and we decided to 
change the type of visa and let's go again. So, ah. and then began the process of me getting a different visa, which led to me eventually getting here. Goodness. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm curious a little bit about uh, maybe a piece of your life that I don't know a lot about, which is your upbringing. And so you've mentioned your brother, Paul, who's your twin brother. Yes. Any other siblings? No, just the two just of us. Just the two of you. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing in Australia. What did that look like for you guys? Yeah, so uh, my earliest memories are of my dad crawling around under my dad's Rhodes keyboard. Mm. And uh, he was the music director for a big band. And um, he was a teacher. He was a music director at a TV station as well. Um, so it's in the genes. Yes, it is for, for both Paul and I. It's definitely in the genes. My grandma was a musician and wow. um, she taught us piano. And so, yeah, my earliest memories of that and what dad was doing was writing music for this um, big band so that they could raise money for a street ministry to kids that were without a place to live. Oh, okay, that's cool. So they Very started cool. something um, called uh, the Jesus People ministry mm-hmm. um and uh it's it's changed over the years and de- t- taken on different names but um but that was my earliest memories was was seeing my dad in that kind of mm-hmm. environment caring for these kids and um, raising money through music and uh through selling those old vinyl records mm-hmm. so so that's what i was born into and about i don't know six seven years of age dad changed uh, and went into radio. So okay. he worked on the radio for 35 years on the same show, which was a night show from... It changed a little bit from year to year, but it roughly went from 8 to midnight, Okay, five nights a week. Wow. And uh, so I remember when I was seven years old, standing, watching Dad drive away, oh, saying, yeah. saying, where's Daddy going? And mum saying, oh, daddy's got a new job. And I remember going to the radio station for the first time. And yeah, it was a big change in our family sure. dynamic. So we grew up really with dad um, not home at night. Mm. And um, Gosh, that's hard. It was hard. Um, I, I didn't realize how hard it was until much later in mm-hmm. life because that was just normal. Sure. Um, but it was hard. He was always there for us when we needed him or if there was something really special happening. Right. But you probably almost had to like schedule an appointment or something to see him, didn't you? Yeah, it was a degree of that. Um, I mean, we would see him uh, once we were older. Like there was actually lots of times where we'd just kind of be hanging out because mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have classes at school or... Mm-hmm. I'd wake up and he'd wake up late because he'd get in at one or two in the morning. Um, so we'd just, there was these moments in life where as we got older, we'd just be hanging out. But as a general rule, um, it was mum tucking us in at night and um, dad kind of being out talking to the city because sure. it, it was a radio show that let people call in and talk and he would interview people and... Um, it's a really good show. I mean, obviously it was good because it went for such a long time. Sure. Um, so that was uh, connected to at the same time Dad became a pastor at a church, um, which is where I eventually 
was appointed to the staff. Okay. So dad did that. He was a pastor at this church and he was um, on the radio for 35 years. He's still a pastor at that same church. Wow. Was the radio show ministry based? Uh, no, no, it was just a uh, regular talk back radio. They all knew he was a pastor, but it wasn't connected to the church or okay. anything like that. It wasn't a, it wasn't a ministry as such, but it was. Yeah. So just the, uh, I guess you'd say the deprivation of time with your dad in those years, was there, looking back now, do you see, it, did you become uh, more close to your mom? Like how did that pan out in terms of looking back now? Hmm. What kind of effects do you see that that, that had on your, on your life? Um, I wouldn't say I was closer to mom or dad like as a result of, mm-hmm. of okay. navigating that rhythm in our family but um yeah it was it was definitely an an impact like as i said it was later in life and and i remember um i didn't really bother with girls growing up mm-hmm. you know i wasn't interested in girlfriends i just wanted to play basketball and mm-hmm. do music but so my first girlfriend wasn't until I was 18. Mm-hmm. And I remember one night going and having dinner with their family. And it was a weeknight and dad would have been heading off to the radio. And uh, I remember sitting with them at the dinner table and uh, just seeing the interaction that they were having with their dad and the oh, fact yeah. that he wasn't walking out the door. And um, in that moment, it really hit me. Oh, so this is what oh, it's like yeah, that's sure. what you were missing when out your on dad is, yeah when your dad's not racing out the door to go to work mm-hmm. so that was a moment for me where i had to grieve a little bit mm-hmm. and um did you have to process that at some point with your dad uh no because we talked about it growing up and and dad always acknowledged the cost to us Um, and recognized it and thanked us for it and thanked my mum for it. So it was a constant communication in the home and publicly too. So dad would always acknowledge that cost. And because he was a public figure, the older I got, the more it became I couldn't go anywhere without someone knowing. They would see my name and they would say, oh, are you Graham Mabry's son? Uh, So for us to have a family holiday, we had to leave. So... It, wow. be, it got to the point where uh, whenever we had a break, it was we got on a plane and we went somewhere. So how do you think that shaped your identity, being Graham Maybury's son, all of growing up? Yeah, I had all those classic comments, oh, big shoes to fill, you know. Uh-huh. And um, so that did impact on me. So dad was aware of it and he would always be fighting against it. Mm. And, he, and, That's he'd, good. and he'd always be saying, you be you. Mm. That's awesome. Um, so, so that's why it never really impacted me. I I had my own unique relationship with my mum and dad, mm-hmm. um, but we were a very close, tight knit family. We still are, even though my mum and dad are still in Perth, and mm. Paul and I are here. And you know, we've um, like mum and dad did a great job of navigating what was a really difficult situation for them, especially my mum. Like I can't. I can't imagine that being my rhythm. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't know if I could do it. I guess if if it was part of my what was on my life to do, then there would be the grace to do it. But 
Sure. Yeah. It's it's tough. Like it that's a tough rhythm to, to sure. embrace. So being a twin, I have nephews who are twins and yes. so I've I've seen them grow up and work through they were a little bit different dynamic because they had younger siblings. Uh, but my experience of them was that they just literally did everything together. They're um, in their early 20s now, and so I'm starting to see them just now start to kind of do some things on their own. And so they were just connected at the hip forever. Yeah. Uh, what What was your experience being a twin? How did you – what was that vibe like for the two of you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Tyler and Jordan being identical twins mm-hmm. – uh, I think they have to navigate something that Paul and I never had to navigate. I think being an identical twin is a totally different scenario. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, yes, you grow, you literally grow up together, but there's something about not having that same DNA connection. Like we're brothers that happen to do life together, mm-hmm. but you look and very different. We're very different. We mm-hmm. look very different. Um, I mean, yeah, Tyler and Jordan are so different. Yeah. Um, it's like Paul and I are different, but people don't look at me really and confuse me with my brother. True. There was a, a season when we were little, like two, three, where people would confuse us. Uh-huh. But as a general rule, that's never been an issue. And yes, we were we were often doing stuff together. Right. So for Paul and I, it was music and basketball um a lot of our friend net, friend network was the same okay um but we we found that balance we we definitely had our own life um i i tended to approach like school different to my brother mm-hmm. and so he got involved with some different things at school to what i did and gotcha um just little things like Paul got more down, went more down the road of visual art, and I stayed in the music program, and just little things. We just I I did a basketball scholarship, and Paul chose not to do that, even though he could have. Gotcha. Like there were certain things that we chose a different path, but we were always good friends. A lot of our mates we'd all mm-hmm. hang out together, and we um, we had a band like that. I started managing. <laughs> When we were 14, 15, I'd book the, the church auditorium for us to rehearse and start writing songs together. That's and awesome. A little business manager. Yeah, I was really, I got down. I thought if no, if I don't do it, no one else is going to do it. So yeah. I just started managing all that stuff and um, wanted the band to happen. And that stayed with me for a long time. Well, that's a great answer because that was going to be really my point <laughs> was from that line of questioning was... Was there ever, maybe not at the moment growing up, but a time where you felt, okay, I need to distinguish myself from my twin brother. Hmm. Did you feel like there was ever, did you ever do anything or maybe he have do anything simply because he didn't want to do it with, you know, you didn't want to do it because your twin brother was doing it or yeah. was it pretty organic? Uh, there was a need for that, I think, in our f- friendship, Paul and I, okay. for us to to mm-hmm. be brothers but be friends as well. Yeah. And uh, I, when we were 25, 26, so um, up until that point, we were largely in, in one another's world. Mm-hmm. And um, 
to a degree. Like I said, I went and did a science degree. Right. He ended up doing music and visual art, and he ended up getting into the gig scene in Perth. And I was working for a hospital. Yeah, you excelled so, in academics like, pretty well. Yeah, it was. I went more down that academia road. Paul just wanted to get out there and do it. Yeah. So, um, so we de- definitely went down different roads, but yet there was these certain elements of life that just kept pulling us together. Sure. And one of the big ones was music. So, and then there was the oh, your Graham Mabry son, and um, part being the part PKs. You know that people would keep lumping us together and keep comparing us, and comparing's a big deal for twins. So, we just had that whole thing to wrestle through. And it was when we were at that time where the band Paul and I started, when we were about twenty one, twenty two. Well, that started to take off when I got to music school. So at that point, he was really starting to be traveling a lot more. And then he got offered a job with Sony um, to become a music director with mm-hmm. one of their artists. So he took that job and was at that point living in Sydney when he took that job. So he, he and I at that point were able to enter a season for the first time where we were in two different cities. Oh, okay. And uh, he met his wife, Maggie, uh, about four years, three years after that move and has not had not lived in the same city as me until I moved here to Nashville six and a half years ago. So we had this huge chunk of time. Mm -hmm. It's like a big fork in the road where you were able to kind of forge your own paths. Yeah. And that really helped us both because it it helped me, I'm sure, to find my voice and him to find his voice void of all the noise that was going on around us and um uh, i mean i don't want to put words in his mouth but for me it was really helpful just to have that um, space to really work through my identity Mm -hmm. and to know oh this is me this is my voice Mm -hmm. um this is this is not me kind of trying to do something because Paul does it or because someone thinks I should do it or because that's what my dad did. Um, like, and this is just me. Sure. And how old were you when you were really first able to start that process and how long would you say that process really lasted for you? Uh, that specific experience, it is a long time. I mean, I wouldn't, I'd even see now there's still moments, but... Mm. Um, but it was probably a three to four year mm. period of of just moments going, oh, oh yeah, that's that's painful. Oh, oh, oh okay, that's that's me, you mm. know. Or that's little moments of awareness and mm-hmm. celebration, and little moments of awareness and pain and letting go. And you know, it was a, it was slow, but um, but so uh, eventful for me just to have that space. Mm. And um, like when I went to when I went to my brother's wedding in Denver, a friend of mine fully expected me to be upset that because I was still single, and I think we were thirty when Paul got married, so or twenty nine turning thirty, and mm-hmm. I, I still didn't have a girlfriend. And um, but I honestly, it it I had found my place and and found my rhythm and I was yeah. doing my master's program and 
was all just super excited for what was happening in my life and was super excited for what was happening in my brother's life and that was it. So there was no jealousy or I wish or sure. why not me or That's good. like it it that was a marker moment where I knew okay not that I not that I don't know. Like maybe if that period of time had not happened and Paul got married Maybe I would have struggled more than I did. Yeah. But for sure that was a moment where I knew that I I had my own path mm. and Paul had his path. Sure. And I was totally content. And more than content, I was excited. And mm, that's a very that's healthy great. place to enter age thirty at. That's a much healthier place than than I was at turning twenty nine <laughs> to thirty. I think I had an existential crisis. Of like, oh, all these things I, I thought I was going to to do before thirty, because you know we make these these mile markers in our lives, right? Oh yeah, I mm-hmm. had that. I thought I'd be married. I thought I'd have kids. You know, there's a lot of things I thought I'd be doing. I, when I was 27, in my second year at music school, that was a hard year. But it wasn't because of Paul. It was it was because of my own dreams that i had that i had to let go of but that's another story that's good sure dreams like what oh well (laughs) the the band this band that paul and i started we called it the jive express and we based it on i love that name (laughs) that whole soul train thing and it was like this the the vision of it was let's pull together some of the baddest players in town and um, record music that could stand up in any club and we'll sing about what we want to sing about what we believe what Mm -hmm. we want to live for and if um, and people will want us to be there and they'll want to engage in the music because of the music and um, this lyric would not be a stumbling block so which it might have been for some people so so that was the vision let's just create this music and um and it eventually happened like the it was it was a long process we spent three years stumbling our way through the recording process of getting that first album done because neither of us had done anything like that Mm. and um we ended up getting like uh, this crazy the way that the dots all connected but like we had this vision we went through the recording process we put our money on the table and eventually finished that first album and right when we were ready to mix um, Paul went to do a session for a guy in town and this rarely happened in Perth you know it's not like Nashville oh right but Paul went to go and do this session for a guy and uh, he was finished drumming on the tracks that he was drumming on and was standing listening to some horns get recorded and he said to the the guy who was heading up the project hey i've got an idea do you want any help and he said yeah what's your idea paul so paul sung a line to the horns and and then slowly kind of took over that afternoon and at the end of the afternoon this guy jeremy who was the mixing engineer pulled paul aside and said hey um have you ever done that before and Mm -hmm. Paul said, what do you mean? And he said, producing. Have you ever produced? And Paul said, what's that? <laughs> so, so Paul um, kind of stumbled his way into the producer world. Wow. And 
this guy Jeremy, he used to work at Abbey Road hmm. and work in London on that. some credentials. Yeah, like he's, he's worked on with some big acts, but one of the bands that he worked with was this band called Incognito and uh, this more obscure acid jazz band. Um, and we loved that band and we loved uh, uh, one of the albums that he mixed. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened wow. that the guy no that was that mixed that album was working on that session. And Jeremy loved Paul and said, I want to work with you. That is cool. And Paul said, well, actually, my brother and I have just finished an album. We need to get it mixed and we want it to sound like an album you mixed. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. And he said, I would love to do that. So Paul ended up flying to the other side of the country to Queensland to get this guy, Jeremy, to mix the album. So um, so we like that. That was all going on. And I was so excited. And this is finally happening after years of blood, Mm -hmm. sweat and tears. And now the album goes out and there's all this energy around it in our city. And okay, now it's this label emerged out of it. And. We are now ready to do our first national tour, and the. Um, so you started your own record label with a friend, okay. yeah. And then, uh, so we handed it all to him because we didn't want to have to deal with the business side of it. We right. said, "You do it." And uh, his name was Ian. Is Ian, and uh, he. His name hasn't changed as far as I know. <laughs> so Ian uh, uh, was, and his wife Adi were great great blessing to us at that season and (laughs) right when the band is ready to go on off on that first national tour i'm going into my second year of music school and i get the memos from the management and it's right i mean the date they leave is two days after i go back to school Mm. so that was the point where i knew i was being I had to make the choice. Am oh, I going to yeah. am I going to go to music stay at music school or am I going to stay with the band? Mm. And uh, I knew it was music school. Uh, wasn't even a question. It wasn't a question. But the pain of sure. letting that go and Man. waving goodbye to the guys as they headed off on the first national tour. And um, how old were you at the time? Twenty seven. Wow. So I and I heard all the news of oh, it was a tough tour for them because no one knew who they were. But um, but they got to this big festival and the festival organizers wouldn't let them play on any of the main stages. And they said, let them set up on an outside street. What? No one knew who they were, right. who we were. And um, they started on the first song and it was perfect for the band because that's all they wanted to do anyway. So they were on this stage on this street in this town in Australia and suddenly the street filled with people. Like oh, they, wow. they came out of restaurants and cafes. Wow. And by the end of the set, there was hundreds of people filling the street and people were going to the management saying, you have to get this band on the main stage. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And uh, no one wanted to talk to them. And then there was a line of media people wanting to interview the band saying who are you guys so wow and then was there some buyer's remorse at that point in time of your (laughs) decision to stay in school (laughs) no no well yes and no i mean i never doubted that decision so no there was no remorse in that sense but there was deep pain in feeling like everything that i dreamed of was being pulled away from me Mm. 
So I, I had a lot of letting go to do of just trusting that God would still look after that part of my heart. And, um, and, it, and he did, and it emerged in a way that I never dreamed would happen. Yeah. But it was nothing like what I thought it would be. And do you think that was really like the, the touchstone moment where you and your brother kind of went on separate paths for a while? Yeah, I guess it was because I remember going to the summer festival back in town. Well, it wasn't in town, but it was close to our town a year later. So I'd gone through that journey and mm-hmm. I still wasn't through it, but I was close. And I said to the management, hey, can I come to this show and go to the festival? And they said, yeah, sure, come along. So I, I jumped in the bus and off we went. And um, I was there just to do merch. And mm-hmm. uh, so I I was helping set up all the merchandise and the, the management of the festival approached me and said, where's your lanyard? And I said, oh, I'll go and get it from our management. They said, sorry, Brett, we don't, we don't have a lanyard for you. Now, in, like, I know if I went to them and said, can I get one, they would have 100% said yes. But I, I, I needed some space, and so I left. And um, I didn't have peace about asking for that for some reason. And I went and sat in the bus, and I was so upset and... Like, I can't believe it. Like, I just came here to help, and I was just yeah. angry. And and I, I sensed this voice saying to me, just go back in there and do what you came here to do. And I, I wrestled with that voice for about 30 minutes, and eventually it was like, okay. So I went, I paid my money to go back into the festival and serve at the merch. Paid to serve. Stand. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, as the band eventually went on stage that night, and um, there was thousands like kids jumping, and it's a pretty high energy music, and it was fun. So I'm at the back with my friend Doug, who was tour managing, and we're jumping and having fun. And in that moment, it was like in an instant, I everything stopped. It felt like it. It was felt like everything stopped, and I. I sensed that same quiet voice say to me, you're free. Wow. Mm. And, um, and I was. It was like all that tension and all that struggle and all the, the, the letting go or at least trying to let go. In that moment, I can't explain it. It just was gone. Wow. Like it lifted off me. And at that point, I was really free to see Paul go on and lead the mm. band and... Mm-hmm kind of have his journey whatever that looked like and I was now free to do my journey and I didn't know what that was but um, later that year I would discover it was orchestration and I loved orchestration Mm. and then I discovered I love getting to harness the creative energy of people around me I love seeing people step into what they're great at. Mm. Yeah. So those two things started to come alive in me and it all started in that that moment, but getting to that moment was a painful process. I bet. How how much of that moment do you feel like it was almost like you you had to humble yourself enough to pay pay the money to get in and and sit in with the guy who was managing the tour when that was what probably you used to do for the band 
making the the dates and stuff happen and and sell their merch for the band you used to be in how much do you think just humbling yourself to to be able to go and be a supporter was a process and and maybe turning that switch for you i'm sure that was a big part of it like it's weird to me that i didn't just go into ian and 80 and say hey can i get my lanyard right right. i I don't know why i didn't do that so i i believe it's all part of it that i had to go and sit out at that bus and i think so i had to go through that process of doing what i came there to do and and paying my money to do it too to say no i'm like um, this is going to cost me. Like uh, I'm going to embrace the cost of this moment and um, and not complain about it. Huh. Like stop stop being angry. Yeah. When when I hear you tell that story, and the, I've I've heard you tell it before, it's it's always I get chills, I get goosebumps about it because it it seems like in your unique story, that's like a moment of death to yourself, so that God can put you on a new path and sort of rebirth you. And, and this new creative journey that right. you didn't even see coming. Yeah, yeah, really. And as it was, as I said, like I, I had no concept in that moment of what it would be. Mm. Yeah, I just knew I felt free. Yeah, and I'd been longing for that freedom. And now with what I get to do for my job, I'm often sitting with people who have a dream. Most days, I'm talking to someone who has a dream here in Nashville. You sure. are right now. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. And that, that's hard. You, you have this thing that's so dear to your heart and um, to let it go and to let it become what it needs to become and not what you think it's meant to become mm-hmm. is hard. Um, but it's, it's, it's freeing. Yeah. Like we don't want our dreams to own us. Yeah. Sure. So, and it owned me. Oh, like wow. it, it was, it was a, a shackle around my ankle you know, connected to a very big weight. And I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't shake it off. So yeah, it was a life-changing, life-changing moment. And what I didn't know was it's not only been life-changing for me, but there's been a few people, especially that I know when I shared that story to them, it meant the world. Yeah. Because they knew that I knew their pain mm-hmm. and um, and without that story and that experience that you had to really wrestle with and go through I don't think you could be the shepherd of, of artists and, and people that are in the struggle that you are if you hadn't gone mm. through that I think so much of that has has probably shaped your perspective and, and given you a heart for the hurting artist I think so I, it also was part of why Jamie eventually mm-hmm. years later said, will you come to Journey? Was because one of the things that he wanted, which is why my brother said to Jamie, going back to the start of the interview, one of the reasons that Jamie and Paul said, maybe it's you, is because they wanted someone who could speak the language of music, but really didn't care about being on stage um, really didn't care about mm. recording albums, really didn't care about becoming a singer-songwriter or mm-hmm. kind of pursuing any of those industry things, which I didn't. Like I, in that moment, I let it all go. 
Like I really, truly let it all go. Are there moments where I struggle with my ego mm-hmm. and I want to be seen? And sure. yes, absolutely. We all have them. Sure. But I can, I can say that at the, the, at, in that moment and ever since that time, I've, I've let it go. And um, even moving to Nashville, I didn't come here. I really didn't come here thinking that one day I'd get to orchestrate for some of the stuff I've got to orchestrate. Mm. It just never, yeah. it was never on my mind. That's so cool. Ever. It's happened from relationships. It did. Like I, I was working for a, a, a Sunday gathering, just a Sunday gathering at Journey. And there was a great artist. Her name's Kelly. And I wanted to encourage her. She's a beautiful player. And I was like, hey, I'll write some notes for you to play some violin. Let's get a trio together. And um, she said, yeah. So uh, I spoke to another uh, player, Mandy. She plays viola and Kara, who plays cello. She was touring with All Sons and Daughters at the time. And they all, you know, gracefully said, yeah, let's, let's play. So there was another couple, uh, Stephanie and Tim, who were leading that Sunday. And um, uh, for the first time at our little church, we had a trio playing some strings that I wrote. Mm. And I didn't know it, but there was a friend of mine there, became my friend, a guy called Jason Ingram. And Jason grabbed me at that gathering because he knew me because he's worked with my brother and said, hey, Brett, did you write those arrangements? And I said, yeah, I did. Um, he said, good job, man. Well, a year later, he's flying to Bethel um, to have a meeting with um, Brian and Jen Johnson mm-hmm. about a project they want to do. And he's keeps thinking about that Sunday and about me. It's crazy. So he's meeting with Brian and Jan and another artist who my brother has worked with, Amanda, so I'm told, she walks in to wherever they were sitting and says, Jason, what are you doing here? She finds out and she says, you know who you should get? You should get Paul Mabry's brother. Wow. <laughs> what? And next thing I know, Jason's contacting me to say, hey, can you do the orchestration for the next Bethel album? And uh, I'd never done anything like that. You know, it was just, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation of suddenly what you've dreamed about doing is actually happening. And that's a whole nother conversation because I suddenly realized the weight that so many artists carry here in Nashville where you're about to put pen to paper on something that, Mm-hmm. potentially millions are going to hear mm-hmm. and the weight of that was almost overwhelming i'm sure so um in part because you came to nashville to be a pastor i did <laughs> never to write strings for a bethel album right so i was a huge privilege that i never saw coming and then i got invited by my brother to do the strings for lauren daigle mm-hmm. which was also not planned that was a last-minute decision that my brother made. Yeah, tell us how that happened. That's such a cool story. Yeah, so the Look Up Child album, uh, from what I, I know, was not initially going to be this strings-oriented piano mm-hmm. album, but they made the call somewhat last minute, and I got the phone call. And... So the next day I'm driving to my brother's place, which is 15 minutes up the road from where I am, walking into his home studio and meeting Lauren for the first time and Mm -hmm. finding out they want to do a strings album. 
So it's like, oh, I'd love to. So, okay, what's the time frame? And <laughs> they, uh -huh. they said like three weeks. Oh, it's oh like, perfect. Oh, great. <laughs> so okay. just don't sleep for three weeks. Yeah, so I just started getting sent songs. So basically I had a, a song a day to do, which is not out of the realm of possibility, but it was I was hustling. Sure. You're still working on staff at the church full time. That made it challenging, yeah. So what I would typically do is I would come here and I'd, do all my responsibilities for the day and then I'd go home, I'd tuck my kids in at night and then I would hit mm -hmm. the studio at my home to write all the charts. So we write... same way it's pretty much the same way a lot of people pursue their passions. Yeah, we're I've all... heard of people writing books in the same manner. Like I have my job, I go spend time with the family, everyone's in bed, I go to work. Yep. Yep. Or I get up really early before everyone yeah, else wakes that's up. Right. And that's where I do my work. Mm -hmm. And it's just a discipline. So yeah, to get to write, to get to write for that album was just so amazing, oh. and um, uh, I, I had a moment on the second day. This is where it just it's crazy the way things connect. But on the second day, I was chatting to John from the label, um, uh, who heads up the label, and uh, you know he just came over while we were having our dinner break, and I only had one more session to go. I think it was and. Everything, everyone was super excited about what was happening and there was a real buzz and there was this sense, oh man, this album's going to be something. Um, and when we recorded the strings too, it was the, f they'd recorded piano and voice. So when I was writing, I only heard Lauren and piano. Hmm. And uh, oh no click so, track, no drums at all. Oh, I mean, it was to a click. I got a, I got sent Pro Tools sessions so I could hear and there was one tune where I think there was a, a drum reference that mm -hmm. was for uh, Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. but the other tunes it was just piano and voice, and um, I didn't know what direction Paul was going to take each song, yeah. and he said to me, "Look, just go with your gut." Like, wow. You, so when we recorded the strings, we didn't know. I didn't know how the songs were going to sound. We just recorded the strings to piano and voice. So you were basically oh shaping the energy of the songs. I guess I was. Like Paul, when he said to me, it's going to be a stripped back album. So you're not going to hear a lot of stuff. Um, I'm going to use your strings to layer everything else. Mm -hmm. So it was amazing wow. freedom that he gave me. Yeah. And um, it was a very, very special couple of days. But the interesting thing is John said to me... Um, now, who uh, is John? So John heads up the label that Lauren mm -hmm. assigned okay. to. And he said to me, hey, just want to introduce myself. Thank you for all that you've done. And, and he said, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he said, you know, um, like when Paul said he was going to use you, I said, no, no way. Who is this guy? <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know who he is. And John said to me, Paul, Paul, show me the work you did on the Bethel album. Oh, wow. And I immediately said, yeah, he's in. It all connected. Isn't wow. it? Like if Word. I didn't. So I do that little violin thing for <laughs> Journey Church, which leads to Jason inviting me to do the Bethel one. And because I did the Bethel one, the label for Lauren said, okay, yeah. Which, to be fair, I was there for that church service, and it was amazing. So it wasn't a small little, I did a violin thing. It was amazing. I feel like I might have been there. It, it was, might have been early days of us coming here. Right. It was super fun. I was so pumped that morning to just get to do what I do. But um, 
but I also got to do what I do in terms of seeing Kelly and and these mm-hmm. musicians get to experience something that they yeah. they hadn't before. Yeah. So it was super fun. Um, At that point, how long had it been since you had written for strings? Oh, years. Really? Oh yeah, years. I hadn't written, not like that. I, like I said, the first time I came to Nashville back in two thousand and nine or eight, whenever that was, and we we recorded with this huge section because this guy wanted to do something in town that was just a big project and and he he had some serious money so he he signed a check for us to record with there was like four trumpets four trombones five woodwinds two percussion 22 strings (laughs) harp like it was all in the tracking room in downtown nashville and it was this massive sound and I was conducting three arrangements that I'd done and three arrangements that my my mentor and professor had done. Wow. So I got to work with my professor. It was the last thing we did together That's before cool. I left the school. That's so cool. And um, and my first time in Nashville was conducting this huge <laughs> session in the tracking room. Wow. And uh, it was it was crazy. So that that session to when I wrote for Bethel was the time difference to like five years well what was that yeah seven years seven years. eight years wow between doing some legitimate string writing yeah wow wow so it was but i listened to a lot of stuff and i was always always learning i was always going and looking at scores and I don't see how you do it. Like, do you just hear the different instruments in your head? Or are you using synthesizer on the keys to kind of give you a reference? I used to go straight to score for anyone who's interested in this stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I used to go straight to score. And, and then when I did the Bethel album, I knew I needed to change my thinking. Because I thought, Bethel, I just need some... They said to me they wanted that album to sound cinematic. Mm. So... Uh, when you say straight to score, you mean straight to just writing the notes out because you hear you know what it's going to sound like in your head. Yeah, I mean it was digital, so I'd throw it into Sibelius what I'm hearing. Right. Sibelius will let you like he- hear it back. It's a computer program. Yeah, but mm-hmm. it's not great. Like right. if you don't know in your head, it's going to be still kind of digitized. Yeah. yeah, like so. But I used to do that. Wow. And I knew I knew pretty much how it would sound. But then when I did the Bethel album, I needed to change my thinking. So I went into uh, a different environment where you're playing around with the sample sounds of string instruments. Mm. And I and MIDI, what's called MIDI, mm-hmm. where you've got these like visual representations of sound and you just start moving them around. Oh, that's cool. So you, you're not looking at a score if you don't want to You'd, right. you you can if you want to in in pro tools but i would just look at midi and go more with my ears and what my ears are telling me feels a bit less academic yes and more feel yeah more or- organic more f- yeah more like my gut, heart. Gut, yeah, yeah, gut heart response of mm, oh okay this is what I, this music's telling me mm. and this is what the string parts are now telling me and I'll figure out what it looks like in theory next. So when it came to taking all that information that I'd put into Pro Tools, all that MIDI information, and then finally putting it into a score form 
it was always interesting to, for me to actually see it in a score. And the amount of times I would look at the score and think, there's no way I would have done that <laughs> if I just saw it oh, that's cool. with my eyes. Mm-hmm. I would have looked at it and thought, nah, that's, that's pretty risky. Mm. So now I pretty much always, not always, but most of the time now I, I operate by going with what my gut is telling me mm-hmm. and um, just play around with sounds and then I put it into a score because I've found in the last do I did that with Lauren's album as well. So I know I'm, and I just recently did a, an arrangement for an amazing producer orchestrator called Bernie Holmes, and um, he wrote a song with his wife Natalie Grant, mm-hmm. and um, she her voice is I mean she's been an icon of this city for sure. a long time. Oh yeah, yeah. Her her voice is so big, and this song <clears throat> is really good. Uh, I can't wait for it to come out. Yeah. It's a great song. So I, it's called No Stranger. So um, keep an eye out for that one. Okay. Absolutely. And I got to write the arrangement for that song. And I can't believe Bernie trusted me with this arrangement because he's written with big names and his orchestration skills are so good. So it was a mm. bit intimidating to get to work with this guy. Pretty awesome, though. And this was off of the success of the Lauren, Lauren Daigle project. Because of the Lauren Daigle project and the Bethel project, Bernie now wanted to have me working with him. It all just keeps rolling forwards. Yeah. So Bernie wow. was very gracious throughout the process. And, um, you know, for me to get to work with a guy like that, which I hadn't before was was intimidating because with Jason and Paul they're songwriters and producers and the language around that was different whereas with Bernie it was very intentional you know it's like bar 24 on beat 2 like let's look at this note he's speaking your language yeah so now it felt like I was back in school yeah and where I was able to really dive in and we're truly iron sharp iron sharp and iron and 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 tease out these arrangements so it was it was really exciting to get to work with him that's very that cool. So cool now before we go go into transitioning into other talk we got to double back just for half a step and talk about carnegie hall oh yeah uh yes so <laughs> when we were at the lauren daigle listening party um, before the album came out, her management approached me and said, um, oh, Brett, I'm going to connect you with, I can't remember their name now, but so-and-so from Carnegie Hall. Hmm. We just need to get those charts ready for her show in January. And I just heard Carnegie Hall Wait, and nothing else. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I was like, what's going on? So, yeah, we, um, we did a show at the start of this year at Carnegie Hall. And it was really cool because... I, I had to adjust all the arrangements that we did for the Look Up Child, but then they had taken five, six, maybe eight songs from her previous albums mm-hmm. that uh-huh. they'd redone for the show and that they're still doing for their um, current tour. And like the, wa- the way they approach um, two or three of her songs is so different. Um, it's way more soul, kind yeah. of laid back, uh, less pop and um, oh gosh it's so good like the arrangements that they've done for some of her earlier stuff mm. so it was cool for me to get to write 
for these new songs. Sure. Why couldn't they use the the album arrangements for the Look Up Child? Was it just a different different number of instruments and things? Uh, some they could, like a tune like Rebel Heart. It was no change, but um, other songs like uh, Rolling Stone had changed, um, and they morphed songs like they would go from one song that on the album the going into a different song and yeah. then back to. Mm. So it was everything was being mashed up and changed around because it's a live show. You don't. Yeah. There has to be moments where it's exactly like the album, and there's other moments where there's all these surprises coming at you. Yeah. So, at least I think like if I go and watch a band live and they just give me the album exactly, mm-hmm. I'm disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I want to hear something. Could have heard that in my car. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like give give me a live experience. Sure. So that's what they've done. They've so we had to rearrange a bunch of stuff, cool. but to get to. <laughs> That's crazy. You're you're backstage on this iconic venue and you're seeing all these posters of people, Beatles and Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and all these famous conductors, you know, from the art world. And and I'm standing in this room thinking, I'm about to go out onto that stage and conduct. Wow. And all my arrangements are being played here, but I asked Paul if I could conduct my favorite song which is this girl, and um, hmm. and he said yes. So I got to That's conduct. Incredible. Not only that. was your arrangements played at Carnegie Hall, which you, you got to, to do, but you got to conduct your favorite song from the album. Yeah. yeah. How cool was that? It was, it was, I mean, goosebumps. I remember walking out on the stage, and Lauren told the story of that song, and there's this string arrangement at the end of that song. Which to this date is the favorite thing I've ever written of, of my work. Wow. Like the end of that song moves me, even me. You know, it came from me, but yet it moves me mm. every time I hear it. And um, I mean, just a little behind the scenes for that album. Like when they recorded that song, the piano player kept playing and he just had this little piano <clears throat> soft idea that he kept playing while he was talking to my brother. And all he was saying was something like, okay, so are you happy with that take? And, you know, do you want to do X again? And he's still kind of just tinkering away. Yeah. And eventually he stops and doesn't think anything of it. Well, Paul hears that and he thinks, maybe we could make something of that. And he said to me, do you think you could do something with it? And I said, I think I can. So I wrote this string outro to go with this little piano thing. And because he's playing almost nothing... It gave me a huge amount of freedom. Oh, sure. So I wanted to create this thing where the chords sort of morph into one another and it's very hard to get a sense of of harmony. It's Mm -hmm. more this evolving texture with these moments where the harmony lines up. And I wanted the violin part to sound like it was crying over the top. Mm. So uh, very emotive and um, it was the last song we recorded for the album and that was the last of course the last thing that was played for the album so so when we recorded that i'm conducting and focusing on the string players but behind me what i don't know is happening is slowly people start crying weeping in the control room oh wow and i walked in after it and jason ingram was there and he looked at me and he said dude 
that's of another world. I don't know what just happened. So we all knew, okay, something very special just happened. Wow. And um, it literally, and it, I've heard it. It literally does sound like, like weeping. Yeah. That was my intention. And uh, I still like that moves me every time I mm. hear that. And uh, when... I got to conduct that at Carnegie Hall. There was also this 200-voice choir, which I had to write for. And I, I made them sound very angelic on that song, which it's not really the case on the album. But at Carnegie Hall, when they came in, I wanted it to sound like mm-hmm. angels, you know. So, uh, <laughs> in fact, I was so caught up in the experience at rehearsal of being on the stage at Carnegie Hall I'd lost track of where I was in the score and all of a sudden the choir comes in. I'd completely forgotten that I wrote that. Oh, my God. So I got hit by this warm, round, big, angelic sound where they're not singing in words. It's just ours. Wow. And, I mean, it just about knocked me off my feet. That's amazing. And, so I mean, cool. I was flying. It felt like I was flying around the room in that moment because it, it just was so moving so yeah to get to share that experience with my brother and when you think about okay all those years back when i was 27 i thought i was waving goodbye to getting to play in a band Mm -hmm. play in a band so to speak with my brother Mm -hmm. and get to create music with him in great clubs around the world. <laughs> right. Well, how's, yeah. how's Carnegie for how's you, Brett? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How's Carnegie? W- will that do? But oh, my goodness. A few, a few good uh, bands have played there. Yeah. So you think, wow, Brett, like, this is where I'm saying it's nothing like what I thought it would be. But, I mean, how, how do you find words for that? And your second major record that you're able to do orchestration on, go on and win a Grammy. Yeah. Like I... I <laughs> It's crazy. I remember uh, about a week before the album came out, someone messaged me on uh, uh, an image of Lauren, this huge um, image of her in Times Square that Spotify had paid for. Wow. Saying, you know, look up child. And I looked at that and thought, what is going on? Like this, what is Lauren doing in, in Times Square? That... I wrote the strings for that album and it's plastered across Times Square. I can't. And it's got a ton of crossover radio play. It is. I'm hearing it in stores that don't play Christian music. Yeah, my wife hit Amazon Playlist. It was just one of those, you know, just hit play and it just comes up with whatever. It's on all kinds of TV shows. Uh, I've heard it multiple times on America's Got Talent Mm -hmm. as lead in, you know, stuff. I'm like, I was it's sit- everywhere. I was sitting in Starbucks having a coffee, and I heard this girl come on, hmm. and uh, I was like, "Oh, maybe one, maybe one of the staff just put it on." And I thought, "Nah, that's Starbucks. They wouldn't do that." <laughs> so I went onto the Starbucks playlist, and they'd chosen this girl for their Starbucks playlist. Oh, wow. My goodness, your favorite, song. my favorite. So I sat in Starbucks listening to that string outro that I wrote. I can't as imagine I, as I sipped oh, my, my coffee. Goodness. That's so cool. It was so bizarre. It's almost like a pat on the back from God. So crazy. I've always been jealous of that moment for artists who hear their song on the radio for the first time. Yeah. I cannot imagine that feeling. 
I've only or, heard my song on a local oldies station that <laughs> did not get national radio play. Oh, <laughs> still. Or the other thing that I find myself jealous of is to be singing a song you wrote and the whole crowd singing it with you. Oh, that would be crazy. I can't imagine that. That'd be crazy. Yeah, I haven't had anything to that extent, but I remember back when we were we were with that Jive Express band and before the guys started doing touring, we had this show in a local club and there was maybe 500 people there squeezed into this club and we were standing on stage. I was in the horn section playing saxophone and I wrote this song um, based on, uh, what did I call it again? Um, uh, it was based on the story of, of uh, friendship, like of, uh, of forgiveness and forgiving a friend and welcoming them back into your life so very basic sort of plot for a song but um I, there was these kind of lyric playful lyrics where you could do actions to them if you wanted to mm -hmm. that little ymca the, action yeah not quite to that extent but like i thought yeah this it was just playful um and we did that song and i was looking out and i saw like everyone was singing the words that I'd written. That's hmm. so cool. And there was one or th two or three like teenagers kind of doing the actions I thought they might do. Mm. And uh, But it wasn't as, cool. as obvious as some of the YMCA type tunes. So, right. Yeah, it was really, it, it's surreal when that kind of stuff goes on. But I can't imagine what it would be to be someone like Bono or... Oh my gosh. And to have a stadium or... Or, you know, Paul McCartney hearing these songs that he wrote, like just these iconic songs. It's hard to fathom that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, we so all of this stuff has happened, like we said, in part because you accepted this idea of becoming a pastor. It was something you had already felt the first time you were here that... I'm going to be a pastor in Nashville, I think. You come, you're a pastor. The way that looked, your time at Journey, you kind of started as like the worship, overseeing the whole worship arts uh, thing at Journey that eventually evolved into a little bit of your heart for the artist into this thing, which I think is one of the coolest things that I've ever seen at a church, which is this Journey Arts Collective. So talk just a little bit about that transition where that came from how journey how jack as we call it writers started yeah. Yeah, that's how we become friends yeah it is it is tj i i uh it happened really quickly and then it was a process of discovering what to do with it mm. so the quick realization was wow there are a lot of people in this town who are very gifted and uh, uh either looking for traction on what to do with that. Like mm -hmm. I've got an idea, I've got a dream, I've moved to town to pursue. And when they get here, typically it doesn't happen quickly. Mm -hmm. So right. you'll usually have a season of three to five years before anything happens of, of note or what we think is of note. And... Um, that's if you can hang in there yeah. that long. Yeah. And a lot of people don't. Yeah. And um, it's it's painful. So within days of being here, no one, I had multiple people contacting me to say, hey, can we get a coffee? 
sure. Now, back, my Australian mind was, oh, they want to talk to me about being on the sound team, mm-hmm. on the music team, to right. do the lighting, to do right. the pro presenter, which is what would have happened in my last church. And nobody wanted to talk to me about that. They all wanted to talk to me about an issue they were having with their manager. They wanted to talk to me about uh, do I leave the band and stop touring like my marriage is struggling. They wanted to talk to me about um, I've moved to town and uh, everything I thought would happen is not happening and I don't know who I am anymore and a lot of identity conversation, real real wrestles with identity. Real Um, life stuff. Yeah, like nobody wanted to really talk about joining the team um so i so your your thought of i think i'm gonna come to nashville to be a pastor really came true in a very true sense of the word pastor not necessarily the title pastor but yes instantly you're pastoring people and that's really insightful shane because i i don't often go to conferences but it's been a couple of times i would go to a pastor's conference and um you know, the usual question comes your way. So what do you do? And, uh-huh. Oh, I'm a worship pastor. And then the follow-up would, would be, oh, so you lead the songs. No. <laughs> uh, so you preach on a Sunday. No. Uh, so you, and they would just start, mm-hmm. oh, you write the songs for your church. Uh, no. <laughs> like, so they didn't quite know right. what box to put me in. And I was like, no, I pastor. I'm- yeah, these artists—that's what I do. I shepherd them, um, and that's always that's what it so was cool. from day one. From day one, I was no, which is why Jamie and Gary went to the trouble they did to get me here. Mm. So uh, I didn't know it would be bigger than Journey, mm-hmm. um, but it's turning into be uh, not just a, a stirring of the heart for me, but a stirring of the heart for our community at the Journey Church to be able to say, hey, how can we create a safe place for us to gather these artists and entrepreneurs because most artists have to engage in an entrepreneurial conversation Mm -hmm. and a lot of entrepreneurs have to engage in an artistic conversation. So we do have artists and entrepreneurs sitting alongside one another not now sitting with me mm-hmm. specifically to have these conversations, but to sit with one another to have these conversations. And it's become my hope because as once I came to that realization, I need to gather these people. I didn't know what it would look like, but we did a trip to Europe about three years ago. And on that trip, I, I saw a group of people like wrestling through stuff together and helping one another and asking one another really good questions and um, just working it out. And when I got to the end of that trip, that's what I wanted to do. Mm. It was, I want to create an environment for us to be able to go on a journey together, not isolated events where I may or may not see that person again but actually, no, we're going to engage in a journey and we're going to be able to support one another through the seasons. Mm-hmm. So, um, And tell us just for a minute, because I know, what, what that trip, the significance of that first uh, Jack European trip meant to you, because I know you were wrestling with not just your identity as worship pastor, but, you know, what's next? Yes. So I came to the realization about three months, two months before that trip that 
worship pastor was not going to be my title anymore. So the question is, am I meant to be a pastor at mm. all? And on staff at a church, um, maybe my shepherding is going to look different. Uh, so I didn't know. I, I really left on that trip not knowing what would be next. Uh, I knew I needed to talk to the leadership and be honest, and I, and I did. And they said, well, let's not rush to any decisions. Mm. Let's pray about this and uh, let's see where it takes us. So I was graciously, graciously given six months to process and pray. And it didn't take quite that long because of the trip to Europe. But, uh, but yeah, when I left for that trip, I didn't know if I'd be coming back to the same job or if I'd be moving on. I really didn't know. I I quietly hoped I would get to take this dream that I had in my heart for this community called the Journey Arts Collective, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, being in Europe and getting to see what I saw and getting to come home and sit with the leadership of this church and say, I have a heart for artists in our city and wherever God would take me in the world mm. um, to to see us on a journey together and um, to create environments for the sharing of art and story because I believe that's where you have the break, the, the coming against the breaking down of a commodity mindset mm-hmm. where we can so easily see one another as a commodity and a resource, mm-hmm. like a human resource. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so dehumanizing. And when we share story like you guys are doing with this podcast, what you actually do is is bring out and celebrate the unique soul that's in every one of us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, and that yes, we do have uh, a u- a unique story to offer. And um, it's hard in this city that can get lost. Sure. Yeah, that sense of identity. And where do I fit in the noise of this city? So uh, that's one of the reasons why I take people to Europe is to get out of the noise of mm, what they're in good. so that they can have some quiet to listen and, um, and to see that listening happen in the context of space and time with God, mm-hmm. but also listening, with, uh, listening to the voice of the community around me. One, one thing that I've loved about the Journey Arts Collective, uh, the, I would say limited experience that I've had with it is, um, I'm sure you've heard this a lot. I know I have that people say, well, I'm not really artsy. I'm not really a creative person, that kind of a thing. And I, I understand what they're trying to say. And even until a few years ago, I would have kind of said the th- same thing. Cause I don't paint. I don't, you know, I don't, well, I'm do not paint. a musician. Oh, I do paint, but not canvas typically. Um, and so when I, that word art or creative, I think people have a certain thing of what that means um but the truth is we're all creative right and um to me a major facet of art in general yeah is inspiration inspiration to to be better to work harder at whatever it is that god's given you whatever Mm -hmm. that talent is whatever that passion is and uh one of the things that has come out of this journey arts collective is this purple couch yes. idea. Yes. So, so in the short time we have left, briefly tell us what purple couch is all about. Yeah. The 
my hope was to um, because a lot of the time when we come together as an arts collective it's really about an environment where there's the sharing of our story what's happening in your life what's happening in my life mm. it's occasionally a voice of another but mm-hmm. but that really wasn't the focus however we all recognize that that has immense value mm-hmm. yeah. so my my hope with the purple couch was to identify friends or friends of friends that could come and sit on a purple couch mm-hmm and share their story and their art with us. And, and that would become a place of, of uh, awakening and inspiration and, and really be a bridge to our community. So we've had a few of those as mm-hmm. we've been exploring this purple couch. The most recent one was, was with an icon of mine and I think many people in the world, mm-hmm. Kirk Whalem and his music director, John, joined us as well. So, uh, so my hope for the Purple Couch and my belief is that, um, that this can be a, a safe place, not just for those that come, that it would be an intimate setting, um, but for the artist as well that's joining us, that, um, that they would get a sense of them speaking to their peers. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I like to treat it like a couch conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do sit down with, with a thought in mind as to where I want the conversation to go. But, uh, but it's always interesting to see where it actually does take us. Yes. So with Kirk Whalem, oh. uh, like I know, I mean, you were there. Yes. So uh, one of the unexpected moments of that night was getting to ask him about his time with Whitney Houston mm-hmm. and then... Um, so I'd planned to do that because I knew he'd pastored this amazing artist. So I wanted to know what he learned about himself in that process of shepherding this band. And, um, and in asking him that question, we got talking about that iconic solo that he recorded for Whitney Houston of that wonderful old Dolly Parton mm-hmm. song. And, um, and what as we're killing time, you know, what he shares of that solo and that, that song and how it was Whitney Houston's first take and, and how that saxophone solo was his first take. And wow. what I didn't realize as well, because I hear that solo and to me it's faultless. Yes. Yeah. Like I can't hear anything in it that doesn't move me. And yet there was one note in that solo that as we listened back to it, which was a spur of the moment thing, mm. well, I got very emotional because suddenly I connected to my childhood and yeah, like it really totally took me by surprise to hear that song after not really having heard it for many years and then hearing, um, uh, hearing him play that solo and watching him listening to himself play his yes. solo was just so crazy. Oh my gosh. And then at the end of it, he said, oh, there's one. He said to me, because being a saxophone player, that was the first solo, one of the first solos I ever transcribed. And he said something like, well, I bet you played it better than I do in your room. Because <laughs> every time I hear that flat note, and I was like, flat, that's, no, that's not flat. It's, it's one of the highlights of the solo oh, for me because yeah. this note is just aching and yep. that song is a song of ache mm-hmm. you know um it's I'll, that it's that 
grind of the saxophone that people can yeah, do. Yeah, like if you've got someone it, singing, I will always love you, mm-hmm. and the pain, like the pain of Whitney's voice in singing that song, and and then he comes in and and he hits that solo and that beautiful. note kind of just it's just aching. So anyway, like those moments are. Uh, so special and and so unpredictable so yeah i'm really excited for where where the purple couch is going to go and well that night was amazing and i think that you know the the kind of the purpose behind or or one of the purposes behind journey arts collective as a whole but especially those special evenings of the purple couch is not to just hey here's another person who's a really good instrument player you know whatever it is they are um, because there are a lot of those, uh, but to sit down and go, we there may or may not be music, like there may or may not be a physical representation of what they do, but we're gonna sit down, we're gonna hear their story, we're gonna hear how they, um, you know, process everything that they do, and it's in those moments that we're able to see the idiosyncrasies of the artist. And also be able to identify the synchronicity of how we connect with them, even though I'll never, probably never play saxophone, period, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I don't, but I don't have the wind for No, it. but certainly not like that. Yeah. And so I don't connect with him on a, we're, we love saxophone level, but I connect it's with a heart him on level. a, yes. Yeah. And that was just the brilliance of that night, I think, that was so inspiring to me uh, we joked around after with a couple of people like well i guess we're all going to be saxophone players now <laughs> <laughs> which it was a joke because we were so inspired not to be saxophone players but to just whatever we do to holy cow look at this guy yeah, yeah. when you sit with someone who's passionate about what they do it's infectious yeah yes and uh there's something about creating space for humanity to be um, to be revealed in all its mess and all its glory. Mm. Yeah. You know, so I contagious it's so, energy. It's so powerful, and it's not often provided for mm-hmm. with these artists. True. Like, they don't often get that environment where within a pretty quick period of time, they start to see, oh, this, this is safe here. Yeah. Um, and then in that place of safety... There's comes the vulnerability and um, and then that ripples into all of our lives. So to get to see this man um, share the way he did is is a privilege. And I'm sure we're going to have each night will be so different. Mm-hmm. But where I trust we're just at the beginning of this purple couch idea. And I love it. Something about friendship too. Like when I get to sit with a friend of a friend of mm-hmm. a friend, that's mm-hmm. that's one of our hopes with the Purple Couch. Not that I would be opposed to having someone join us who's not connected to us in that way. Right. It's but, relational. But it's very relational. Mm-hmm. And uh, ideally um, it's that way because it that creates a safe place. And, yes. Um, that's great. So, And I wouldn't be able to... to let us quit talking about the purple couch without without giving you a compliment and letting you know something. Uh, so when you asked me to interview you and sort of our our very first sort of trial run, yeah, very our couch, pilot purple couch, yeah, I I literally 
was having a rough day and you asked me out of the blue i said yes mm -hmm. and it was what we were able to do in that conversation and just just have our hearts be open and be present to the moment and just wanted to share and, and reveal your heart to the artist and the people that you've been shepherding all these years, myself included. Uh, if not for that, we wouldn't be here today because it was that that, that gave me my, my fire in my belly again for, for journalism and, and talking to people and saying, you know what, I think we can do something with this because there's there's an opportunity out there to really reveal people's hearts in a way that that people aren't hearing every day mm -hmm. and 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 just to give them a seat at the table and and be a part of those conversations with us I think is a ministry in and of itself and if you hadn't have asked me to interview you that day seven eight months ago this podcast for me would not be a thing wow well I uh, I see that in you, TJ, and uh, and I'm super excited for you both. I mean, you're good friends, both of you, and um, very eloquent guys, and, and you create a safe place for us to sit at mm. this table and, and get to talk about our story. So uh, for me to get to be one of the first, I, I just want to cheer you on because um, I've, I've had other podcast experiences too, and they're all so different. Sure. Um, but this, this one is really special, to be able to get to be given the kind of questions that you're giving to folk mm. and to be given the space and not, not feel rushed. And, yeah. Um, and we didn't prepare anything. We didn't even talk for a minute t together just no, to no, get on the same page. Which, you know... <laughs> We, we probably for, could have done better. For better or worse. <laughs> for better or worse, we didn't. Yeah. Well, I, I hopefully something that uh, is in my story yeah. is going to be of encouragement and um, benefit to a listener. Well, thank you so much for that, being here. Absolutely. Um, it's been so awesome to see the – obviously, I've been around for the whole time that you've kind of come in the Nashville, come in the journey, and uh, to see this take off and to see your passion – for like you already mentioned earlier really seeing people that dive into whatever it is that they've been given by god uh, as their passion as their art and uh, for you to accommodate that for you to encourage that um, and to find a space in a church which is i've never heard of in my life uh, to find a space in a church in a town that desperately needs that has been just a super fun thing to watch and and as a as a part of of the arts collective, man, I, I just have to say, just I'm here in the fight with you, and we're, we're going we're going up together, or we're going down together, man. Because <laughs> uh, you can't shoo me away. Thanks, DJ. Thank you, Shane. It's been a privilege. Absolutely. This has been idiosynchronicity. God bless. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.